Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I love the MSG version. As an Asian man, you got to love the MSG. And this is what Eugene Peterson says. You are blessed when you are content. Some of y'all just got that. Some of you just got that. (laughs) What's going on, God? Okay. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Woo. Let's go. And then my man, Brian Zond, he's an amazing author. And he actually paraphrases it this way. He says, blessed are the quiet and content, the humble and unassuming, the gentle and trusting who are not grasping and clutching for God will personally guarantee their share when heaven and earth become one. Let's pray. God, out of all the Beatitudes, I think this is the one I was personally most excited to dive deeper into because I think this is actually the furthest from our reality here on earth, especially in a city like San Francisco. I pray today that you would inspire our hearts to live in the upside down, to embody meekness in a culture that does not honor it. Open our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, the quiet, the gentle, the non-violent, the non-aggressive, for they will be the ones who will one day inherit the earth. I think out of all the Beatitudes, of the eight Beatitudes that we're covering, I think this might be the one that we really don't believe. I think when we think about meekness, we would say something like, blessed are the meek, for even though they come in last, they'll be called nice guys and get participation trophies one day. Don't you think about that? Sometimes we think about Christians and we think in this life, like we're just going to be trampled on. We're going to be last place, like to love your enemies and to sacrifice. How are we supposed to get ahead? And I think this is one that we find really hard to believe. I mean, do we actually believe that the meek will inherit the earth? Is there any other verse in the Bible that contradicts the ethos of our age more than this verse? Why? Because in our world, blessed are the opportunists. Blessed are the hustlers and the grinders, the aggressive. Blessed are the loud and the proud go-getters. Blessed are the bullhorn grabbers, the platform builders, the meme crafters, the virally shaded tweet throwers. But the meek, how are they supposed to inherit the earth? There's nothing sexy about meekness. I ain't going to turn on the radio and hear Justin Timberlake saying, meek. Like, that's not happening. There's nothing sexy about meekness. There's nothing to monetize about meekness. The meek don't get invited to speak at all the big conferences. The meek don't get profiled in the top 40 under 40. The meek aren't blasted on television as models to emulate. Yet Jesus says, it's the meek that will inherit the earth. Pete Scazzaro, who basically is, he wrote the curriculum for what we're going to get into next as a church. The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is the next collection that we're going to enter into because some of y'all need healing. I need healing emotionally. And so that's what we're going to go into. But he, he writes this about this beatitude. The world honors the successful, high-impact players who are aggressive and make their mark. Jesus says, blessed who inherit the earth are the meek 
the unaggressive, the broken, the grief-stricken, the dependent who cannot live without God. He turns the world upside down. Imagine with me the Roman soldiers who are on the outskirts of the crowd as Jesus was preaching the sermon. Okay, just imagine with me. As Jesus was saying, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. The Roman soldiers, they're probably looking at each other, laughing, smirking, and winking. Why? Because they knew better. They knew the real world. Like this is, a, this is an ideal that the world cannot live by. They knew in the real world, that's not how it worked. You see, at the time Rome was ruling, they were the ones that had inherited the earth. And Caesar conquered the world not by meekness. He conquered the world by being aggressive, violent, and waging war to seize power. And now this poor Jewish rabbi from a village no one heard of is preaching, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. They're probably laughing. They were probably thinking, they are such easy prey. We're going to reign over them forever. It's unfortunate that in the English, the word meek rhymes with the word weak. Come on, how many of you in your discussion said weak when you thought about meekness? And too often we think of them as synonymous, that meekness is weakness. But hear me, church, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not frailty. It's not timidity. It's not being pushovers. It's not being walk-ons. Think about the people that scripture describes as meek. We got Moses. We got David. We got Paul. We got Jesus. Was Moses weak? Moses, who led an entire people out of slavery and through 40 years of wilderness in the desert to take possession of a land inhabited by giants. Is he weak? No. David, who became the greatest king that ever lived, was he weak? No. Was Paul weak? Paul, who became one of the most influential missionaries that ever lived, reaching unreached corners of the world for the gospel, was he weak? No. Jesus, who overcame death and sin on the cross, was he weak? No. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Specifically, God's control. Meekness is power under control. Now, the original word used for meek was actually used to describe the image is this person reigning in a horse. Now, a horse is very powerful, if you don't know. That's why your car has horsepower, right? The horse is very powerful. They can be used to transport people across long distances. They can be used for agricultural work. It has the power to do a lot of good. But an untamed horse with power not under control is what? It's dangerous and can cause destruction. Yo, I was in Kazakhstan in 2007, And while I was there, I was part of a really intense missions organization that I was 19 years old, guys, and they broke us up into groups of four. And this is our whole mission trip. They would drive us to random villages in the outskirts of the land, drop the four of us off without a phone and without money, and they said, we're going to come back in two days. And our goal was just to meet people and find a place to sleep and not die. And so we were walking around, and we finally found a little boy who was walking his horse. And for some reason, I should have thought, I was the leader of the group, I should have thought, okay, little boy with the horse, the boy approaches me, he says, do you want to ride? And at that moment, 
I should have, wisdom should have prevailed in my heart. And I should have said, no, of course not. Are you crazy? I don't know how to ride a horse. I don't know anything about this horse. But as an Enneagram type seven, I thought I cannot miss this opportunity. And so I get on the horse and this little boy is dragging me down the street on this horse. And I'm like having a fun time, like, yay. But there came a moment where I looked down and I realized how high up I was. And I thought, oh, crap. And I think the horse started to sense my fear because the horse started, you know, at first it was like galloping like this, like a little pony. And then it started intensifying a little more. And the boy's like, he's going from a walk into like a light jog. And then the horse is getting faster and faster. And there comes a point where I'm freaking out now. And the horse is freaking out. And literally like those classic TV shows, it goes, and I fall off. I fly off backwards, land right on my back and injured my back for the rest of the trip. I could have died. But I think about that when I think about horses. Because an untamed horse, a horse with power not under control, is dangerous. Think about medicine. A proper dosage of medicine can heal, but an overdose can kill. Think about a breeze of wind. A gentle breeze of wind can be refreshing, but a hurricane can destroy Meekness is power under control. You know, I think two of the most meek people in our church are Austin and Jerry. Because two Saturdays ago, they invited me to go run with them. And just look at Jerry and look at Austin. Like, they are physical specimens. They, you could tell they run. They're even sitting next to each other. And there should be a sign over them, runners. And they're, they're, they invited me to run with them. And they were so kind. Like, I'd, I hadn't run for, like, two months because I hurt my ankle. And maybe about three years before that because I just gave up on running. And I decided to run. And I, 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 for some reason, I thought, okay, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to crush it. It's only been a few years. You know, I, I became a dad. My body hasn't shifted that much. It has. And so I, I joined them. And we start running. And they're like, Mickey, you set the pace. And so I think because I was running with them, I got a little nervous. And so I started running pretty fast in the beginning. The sun is beating on me, and I'm getting so gassed, like, the first minute in. And so I think they noticed, and so they're like, okay, we'll take the lead. And so I'm running with them. But about halfway through, I realized something. I realized these guys have the ability. They could have lapped me by now. They could have left me in the dust, run and run quick, and I would just be alone here by myself. But they were reeling in their power to stay with me. And as I was writing this sermon, I thought, Austin, Jerry, you're so meek. And I want you to think about that when you think about meekness. It's not weakness. It's power, but it's restraint. It's knowing when to use power appropriately. It's knowing when to restrain and when to release. It's knowing how to submit your power unto God's will. A wise man once told me, with great responsibility, with great power, (laughs) comes great responsibility. My man, Peter Parker. Toby, let's go. Who's team Toby? No? Okay. Rebecca Eklund, she writes this really great book on the Beatitudes, and this is what she says. For many of our predecessors, meekness was not a form of power, was a form of power, not of weakness. It referred not to those who never get angry, but to those who never lose their temper. 
The meek are not the weak, but the self-controlled, not those who shrink back, but those who willingly choose to yield. We might paraphrase the beatitude, blessed are those who yield to others and to God. Great example in Jesus. We, we know the story where he, he goes into the temple and he sees these merchants that are exploiting the poor and monetizing salvation. What does he do? In our heads, we think Jesus, a flip went off and he bursts into this rage and flips over tables, grabs whips and whips all of these merchants out of the temple. We think that he lost control. But you know what's crazy? The Bible says Jesus never sinned, which means in that moment, he was in full control of his anger and he was not sinning. Yet Jesus is described as meek. Meekness is not weakness. It's knowing when to exercise your power and to have control over that power. I don't think I could ever have... Actually, the one time I experienced anger without losing control, it was like a righteous anger. I saw a kid bullying another kid. And, you know, I'm a pretty peaceful guy, but I had to step in. I felt that righteous anger, and I felt like I did it without sinning. But I think most of us, we can't imagine being angry and stepping into that without sinning. But meekness is yielding our power unto God. It's yielding our power unto others. And Jesus modeled this so powerfully. Jesus is described in scripture as what? The lamb of God. But he's also the lion of Judah. He's the lion and the lamb. What made Jesus so unique was that despite having all the power and authority of heaven, of the lion of the tribe of Judah, he still chose to came as a lamb to lay down his power and give his life, to lay down his God privilege to serve the least of us. See, the world can't fathom this understanding of strength proceeding from weakness, gain proceeding from loss, power proceeding from meekness. But this is the upside down way of the kingdom. Now, today we celebrate what's known as Palm Sunday. And, you know, I promise I'll do this next year. But back at my church a few years ago, we would actually get palm leaves and just lay it all down throughout the church. Maybe you grew up in church and you did the same. And Do you know why palm leaves are so significant? Does anyone know? So, and Jesus was coming into the town, into Jerusalem a week before his death. And the people were waving these giant palm branches. And they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. They were raising these palm branches. And I want you to know where they came from. And I feel like Jesus' meekness is most powerfully captured in this story. You see, 150 years before that moment, there was a man named Judas Maccabeus. And he actually led the Jewish people to overthrow their oppressors, right? So he was like the person that rallied up the people. They gathered together and they overthrew their oppressors. And the crowd celebrated 150 years ago at that time, by grabbing the palm branches and waving it in celebration of victory over their oppressors. And so what Judas Maccabeus did is he actually got palm leaves and branches imprinted on their currency, on the coin. And that symbol served as a reminder. Every time they looked at it, it served as a reminder that there was victory for Jewish people over their oppressors. And so imagine 150 years later, the Jews are oppressed once more by a foreign nation, by Rome. And so they're in that same predicament. They're being oppressed by the Roman government. And now this man, Jesus, comes into town and they wave their palm branches. Why? Because they're saying, do it again. Lead us, rally us, so that we can overthrow the Roman government. 
so that we can take power. We can seize power once again, just like Judas Maccabeus did. And that's the kind of king that they were expecting. But look at the way Jesus comes into town. If we go to Matthew 21, 1 through 5, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew in this passage is referencing a prophecy made hundreds of years ago by the prophet Zechariah. Where Zechariah, another, another translation says, see your king comes to you meek and riding on a donkey. Why is this significant? I want you to, I want to set up the scene. The people are waving palm branches. They're waiting for a king to lead them to seize power from their oppressors. Jesus comes in on a cute little donkey. And he's making a statement when he does that. Why? It's significant that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey when Pilate chose to enter into town on a war horse. The war horse represented power, aggression, empire, violence, and when a king came in on a war horse, he was making a statement. He was saying, I have the power to destroy you. Bow down or I will make you. But Jesus, on the donkey, the donkey represented meekness, humility, and surrender. Jesus was making a statement about the kind of king that he was. A king who stepped off of his throne of privilege to love the least of these. A king who came to serve instead of be served. A king who surrendered his power instead of seizing power. A king who laid down his life instead of taking life. And yes, while Pilate and Rome had the upper hand for a moment. Yes, while Jesus was eventually arrested and put to death. Yes, while Rome continued ruling by force by many more years. Who's kingdom still stands to this day. The Roman empire, as we once knew it is no more. Their military force is no more. All the power that they had is no more yet. The kingdom of God still stands is ever increasing is ever advancing. This is what Jesus means when he says the meek will inherit the earth in the moment. The people were probably disappointed because they were like, okay, the Romans are still inheriting the earth. But we see that the promise of God is fulfilled. Rome is no more. As they once knew it is no more. Why? Because the meek shall inherit the earth. And this is good news. Because although the powerful and the privileged and the violent seem to have a grasp on our world right now, although the people who trample over others to get ahead are on top, although the proud and arrogant rule and oppress, their days are numbered. Because in the end, the meek will inherit the earth. I want to go to Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. We, we always quote this verse, but I want to look at it through this lens of weak meekness. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is 
light. Another translation, Jesus says, I am meek and lowly in heart. What Jesus is saying here is he's making a correlation between meekness and rest. Rest is a portion for those who are meek. In other words, the earth is seized by the violent and the aggressive, but it's inherited by the meek and the gentle. What's inheritance? Inheritance is a family word. It's a relationship word. We don't earn an inheritance or build our inheritance. We don't fight for our inheritance unless you're part of Game of Thrones. It's simply given by virtue of relationship. In other words, it's not something you fight for. It's something you rest in and receive. My dad has this I probably shouldn't tell you this because you might break into my house, but my dad has this extensive coin collection that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And growing up, my dad would, for some reason, let me touch these coins. They're in case, so I wouldn't damage them. But one time I stole some. And anyway, uh, he was having me play with these coins. And I was asking, Dad, like, what are you going to do with these coins? Are you going to sell them? Are you going to buy something nice? He says, I'm going to give them to you. This is my inheritance to you, my son. And you know what? I'm going to hold on to those coins. I'm going to give them to Zion. And maybe Zion can buy something nice. I don't know because, you know, we ain't making a lot as pastors. But the point is, an inheritance is a family word. It's a relationship word. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can fight for. It's not something that you could build yourself up to. It's given freely by virtue of relationship. And so when Jesus is saying the meek will inherit the earth, he could have said anything. He said you could earn the earth. He could have said you could for the earth. You could receive, the, no, he said inherit the earth. He's saying that you are to receive the earth simply by virtue of being my sons and daughters. If there was one hated group in Palestine during that time, which actually might be a hated group today too, are the landlords, okay? The landlords were the most hated group in Jesus' day. You know why? Because the landlords, they knew if you possess land during that time, it was because you acquired it through violence and through oppression. And so landlords were hated because people knew if they had land, it was because they took it by force. They seized it with power. But Jesus is saying, listen, no. The way of the kingdom is different. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go out and take it. It will be given to you simply by virtue of our relationship because you are my sons and daughters. In other words, seizing is the way of the world. Inheriting is the way of the kingdom. Hear me, church. Seizing is the way of the world. Inheriting is the way of the kingdom. I think one of the most grotesque displays of what the kingdom of God is not was the insurrection of the Capitol last year. Like when I think, I think it was more than just embarrassing. I think it was demonic. It was anti-kingdom. Why? Because when we think about Jesus, if he were to come, he was not one to take up the sword. He laid it down. He was not one to use violence and force to take power. He was one to give up power. And when I think about the insurrection, it was so anti-Jesus because people were using violence and force to overtake. But this is not the way of the kingdom. Seizing is not the way of the kingdom. Inheriting is the way of the kingdom. What am I getting at? The temptation in our lives, the battle against meekness is this is to take for ourselves that which God promises to give us in his time. 
is to do in our own strength, in our own striving, what God promises to do for us by his strength. And so we try to advance our careers in our own striving and flesh. We try to find that perfect spouse in our own efforts. We try to take our lives into our own hands, and we won't stop until we get what we want by any means necessary. Hear me, church. When you bear the burden of trying to make things happen for yourself, you almost always resort to violence and force and leave a trail of destruction along the way. When you try to do things in your own effort, in your own strength, you walk around with the weight of anxiety. You cannot rest. Father Richard Rohr, he says, we are culturally taught that everything out there is hostile. I have to compare. I have to dominate, control, and ensure. In brief, I have to be in charge. That need to be in charge moves us deeper and deeper into a world of anxiety. Do you know why so many of us in our city are anxious? It's this very thing. We need control. We need to be the ones that make it happen for ourselves. God, you're not sending the one into my life. And so I'm going to try and make it happen for myself. God, My career's not panning out. My destiny's not panning out the way I want it. So I'm going to strive in my own effort. And it's not to say you don't put in effort, but there's a difference when you go ahead of God and when you walk in step with him. When you say, God, I have power to try it on my own, but I submit it to you. And you tell me where to exert that power. There's a big difference. One of my favorite books on leadership is this book called The Tale of Three Kings. If you want to be a better leader... I think this is one of the most foundational books I've read. It's this book by Gene Edwards called The Tale of Three Kings. And Gene Edwards, he he writes about the story of three generations of king in scripture, of David, of Saul, and David's son Absalom. And actually the order was Saul, David, and David's son Absalom. And the reason why he distinguishes David from Saul or Absalom was this. David's posture his entire life was this God- This is not my kingdom. If you want me to be king, you'll put me on the throne. If you don't want me as king, you'll remove me from the throne. Either way, it's not my place to take the throne or keep it. I trust you. And if you contrast that with Saul and Absalom, this is the difference. With Saul, what happens? Saul grows jealous as David gains more influence, which led him to protect his position of power by trying to murder David. Why? Because it was his kingdom to protect. Contrast that with Absalom, who led a rebellion to overthrow his own father as king, who brought violence and war to the doorstep of his flesh and blood, who took matters into his own hands instead of trusting God. What's the difference? David could have easily taken the throne from Saul by force. Easy. Like he was the guy with 100,000 or 2 million Instagram followers. Saul only had 100,000, right? He had the influence. He had the support of the people. And he could have taken the throne from Saul. But what did he say? He said, God, if you want me there, you'll put me there in your own time. Instead, he, he wanders for years hiding in caves, not a life that anyone would, want, would have wanted us to live. And David could have easily snuffed his son's rebellion. And said, we're going to destroy you. We're going to snuff out this rebellion. I'm going to maintain my position of power. But you know what David did? David said he trusted that if God wanted him on the throne, 
he would keep him there. And so he didn't have to bear the burden of trying to protect his position. Listen, if it were up to you to get yourself there, it's up to you to keep yourself there. And I think this is the burden of living the way the world wants us to. If you take it by force, you got to protect it by force. But if God gives it to you, it's up to God to keep it. And I think this is why so many of us live with anxiety. Why? Because it's all on you. Success is on you. Marriage is on you. Destiny is on you. It's all on you to make it happen for yourself. And that's a heavy burden to carry. Kind of a long quote, but Brian Zahn, he says this about what we're talking about. There is a besetting paranoia that plagues a superpower mentality. And it's often most manifest in an anxious obsession with security. Anxiety over security is the price the aggressive pay for clawing their way to the top. They're fated to live in constant dread that someone will take away their position of privilege. They worry about who might be hot on their heels. But Jesus, endorsing the psalmist, says there is another way, a way that is blessed and peaceful, the way of radical trust. The meek are not the driven, self-assertive, hyper-aggressive, grab-my-piece-of-the-pie people. They are not the winners and the go-getters, the movers and the shakers, the large and in charge. The meek are the ones who believe in God and are willing to trust God for their portion and their security. The way of violence and aggression is the way of Caesar. The way of meekness and trust is the way of Christ. And they are in contradiction to one another. You know why white people be doing the most? Because they feel threatened about losing their power. Skirt, yeah, okay. (laughs) Do you know why people in positions of power fight to protect that power? It's because they have the anxiety that they are losing it. Because they secured it by their own force and their own strength. So it's up to them. It's their responsibility to keep it. But can you imagine living in such a way? where I can surrender to God in quiet trust and say, I don't have to keep my position because you're the one that got me there. I don't have to fight for myself because you fight on my behalf. I want to ask you this question, church. Is there anything in your life that you're trying to take by force, trying to obtain in your own strength, in your own will, in your own way? Is there anything you're trying to make work for yourself instead of trusting in God? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your future spouse. Maybe it's your ministry. But I hear the Spirit saying, stop trying to make fetch happen. That's the word right now. Stop trying to make fetch. Is that a millennial thing? Did I just age myself? Dang, man, I'm getting old, getting old. What am I saying? The meek trust that God has an inheritance for them. They believe that God won't leave them high or dry. They're confident in the God who fights our battles. One of my favorite songs is by an artist named Will Regan. And he, um, there's this line from one of his songs, and it goes like, I'm nothing without you. I'm barely breathing. Your heart is my refuge, oh Lord. And I love this. 
The posture of meekness is this. I'm nothing without you, God. I'm barely breathing. Every breath is a gift from you. And this is the posture of meekness, a quiet trust in God, a gentle surrender to him, a humble confession of our utter need for him. I will quote the late and great A.W. Tozer. He says this, The meek person is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. As I was praying about what God wanted to do today, I kept being taken to this moment in scripture where Jesus is being arrested and the guards are coming for Jesus and his, one of his most loyal disciples, I mean, he's just trying to do the most Peter, he pulls out his sword and in an effort to defend Jesus, he ends up cutting off the ear of one of the high priest servants. And it's interesting because if Peter did that for me, like if Ying and I were like in the garden somewhere and people be coming for me and Ying pulls out a sword and just chops someone's ear off, I'd be like, let's go. Come on, you want some? You can't take me. Jesus, what does he sell, say to Peter? He says, put your sword away. And he touches the servant's ear and he heals him. And I feel like when I think about this and I think about our world, man, what a disconnect. Because from the moment we're born, we're taught, you got to hold your sword. You got to fight for yours. You got to get yours. You got to preserve. You got to fight for yourself. No one's going to fight for you. You got to make it happen. But I feel like many of us here, we've been living our entire lives grasping this sword. And we're swinging and fighting and trying to win our own battles. And, but even with all the best intentions, we're striking others. We're harming ourselves. We're making a mess of our lives. And I hear the voice of Jesus saying, you can lay your sword down now. You don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to carry this burden any longer. And I see Jesus healing the pain we've caused. Lost limbs, lost ears. Restoring and redeeming all the things that we've made a mess of. There's a song, another song I'm going to sing for you by Stephanie Gretzinger. Everyone used to use it for their wedding back in 2012. And there's this line in verse 2 where it goes, Lord, I've been told to pick up my sword and fight for love. Little did I know that love had won for me. And I just feel like this is the prophetic song that Jesus is calling our hearts to today. That we can lay down our sword that we can trust that he is the one that goes before us, that fights our battles. Why don't we close our eyes, and I want to read this beatitude one more time. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the quiet and content, the humble and unassuming, 
the gentle and trusting who are not grasping and clutching. For God will personally guarantee their share when heaven and earth become one. Right now, I just feel like there's an invitation from Holy Spirit to lay down control, to lay down anxiety, to lay down the burden of trying to make everything happen for ourselves. And hear me, church, this isn't relinquishing responsibility, but this is what scripture means when we cast our cares upon Jesus, when we lay down our burdens before him. It's saying, God, I trust you. The earth is not for me to seize. It's for me to inherit. The way of the kingdom is not by force or violence. It's by the way of receiving and humbleness. Right now, whatever area in your life you feel like you have to fight for, that you feel like you're grasping onto that sword, I hear the invitation of the Spirit, lay down your swords, open your hands, and trust that I will give. Trust that I will move. Trust that I will break through. God, right now, would you speak to hearts? Would there be a beautiful surrender today? I feel like so many of us are weary from carrying anxiety. So so many of us are weary for fighting our entire lives. But today we lay down before you and we say, we trust you, God. Would you move on our behalf? Hmm. I want to highlight it. I feel like there's a specific anxiety as some of you feel like, um, like you're behind that you feel like, um, you're worried if you're, you'll ever hit your mark. You know what I mean? You're worried if you'll ever like actually do the thing that you were created to do. And you're worried if you're, you're behind or you somehow missed it or you're like out of your prime or you're, you're about to like exit your prime and there's this crippling anxiety on the inside of you that that says, if I don't grind harder, if I don't hustle harder, if I don't do something right now, then I'm going to miss it. But I just hear God saying, give me that anxiety. Let go. I have purpose to do through you what I will. And you can trust that you will hit your mark. Um, yeah, yeah, yesterday, um, you know, we've been praying for my friends, um, their baby who was diagnosed with brain cancer. And I know you guys have been praying with, with some of us. Unfortunately, he passed away at about almost two years. He was almost two years old. He passed away last Sunday. And so yesterday we actually drove up to Sacramento and we attended the memorial. And you know what? I was blown away because we get there. It's actually a big sanctuary seating hundreds. 
and it was completely packed. And everyone, um, they asked all the guests to wear like Captain America shirts or like dragon shirts because that was his favorite. And um, there's just hundreds of people gathered there to celebrate a two-year-old. And when I think about that, I, I think, man, we spend so much of our lives worrying about the impact that we're going to make. And a two-year-old that literally has no capacity to be influential or to try to make the world a better place just by virtue of being himself inspired so many people. I think, man, if we could live like that, some might look at this two-year-old and say, man, he didn't get his time. Like, what a waste of potential. But when I looked in that room and I was there at that celebration, and I saw how many people were touched by the life of this two-year-old, who had a crippling illness, I thought, my God, if you can do all this through a two-year-old who has, who's battling brain cancer, then why do I worry if you can use me or not? Why do I worry in this life? Why do I spend so much, wasting so much time in my life worrying? God, if I can do this or that, if I could obtain this or that, God, if I could trust in you, then you will do what you want to do. And I believe there's just a grace today just to be a child again and say, Daddy, I don't have to earn my place in this world. I don't have to earn my place in this city. I don't have to earn a place in my industry. God, I can lean into the arms of my Father and I can rest in who you are and I could trust and live in fullness and joy, enjoying the life that you've given me. And you will do what you want to do. God, I pray over every son and daughter today. God, may we not waste our lives living with that anxiety. May we not waste our lives trying to fight our way in our world. But will we learn the beauty of gentle surrender? Learn the way of laying down, of opening up our hands, putting down our swords. And saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. I thank you for what you're doing, God. I thank you for speaking to us today. I thank you for moving among us. We give you the highest praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.